You're listening to episode 55 of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for birds on the black. I'm Tara. He's Kyle, which can only mean one thing. This is the Minor League Baseball Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Chirps. I am Tara Wellman, usually joined by Alex Crisofoli, but he's off gallivanting at some holiday party, as it turns out. And as such, I am very excited to have with me Kyle Reese. Kyle, I feel like we talk all the time, but never like in public, if you can call it that. And we've been talking about doing a podcast together for a really long time. Um, Alex snagged you first when I was out of town one time, but now it is my turn to have Kyle on the podcast. And I'm very, very excited to talk to you. There isn't a whole lot going on as far as like the major league team, but that has never stopped either of us from diving down a rabbit hole of some sort and talking for probably way too long. But we'll we'll see what happens here. <laughs> I'm about it. I, I cannot wait to have the conversations that we're about ready to have. And I am uh, I feel immensely privileged to be a part of this. And just going to get a, get out ahead of it a little bit. I, I want to congratulate you one more time and thank you. Uh, for for all the like the amazing work you've done at Birds on the Black with with the minor league series, I, I think it's tremendous. I, I'll say it over and over again. I think it's the most important thing that the website has been associated with, and uh, you know, not that transcends baseball. It's something more than that, and uh, it's just been so informative and well put together. And I, it is a I genuinely and truly mean that. So you should be very proud of yourself. And I'm glad that our conversation is going to go in that direction a little bit today. Well, I sincerely appreciate that as much as I find myself invested in minor league baseball. I know that you are the same or even more so as far as your knowledge of of how these players make it through the system. But you're right. It is bigger than that. And we're certainly going to talk about that a little bit because it's a story that I feel like blew up and then kind of went away. And I'm not really sure why, but we can get to that in a moment because I also want to say many congratulations on another series of way more content than I can even imagine creating at one time on the prospects rankings, which people look forward to. And then they talk about and everyone listen, I I sincerely mean this. I think that Cardinals fans have the opportunity to be so much more educated on their minor league system than so many other fans because of the amount of work that you put into that. I'm sure you're glad to have it all done because it was so much. But man, that was a ton of information that people wouldn't get anywhere else. So I, I know I tweeted about it, but I really don't think you can you can find that sort of depth of content um, anywhere else. And plus, it's like just really enjoyable to read and to listen to if you know you listen to the podcast and sing along with the Christmas tunes if absolutely you so choose. Painful. So it's painful, just absolutely painful. <laughs> but thank you. I really appreciate that. I, uh, it was, it, it's actually been hard coming down from it. I, mm. uh, I guess I forget sometimes, you know, you put constant work in it. it, it following the minor leagues the way that I do, cause I'm obsessive is it's a full, it becomes a full-time job. And I, I don't realize until I complete a project that, you know, and you know what this is like until you're hitting publish, you're constantly tweaking and yeah. changing and adding, you know, I was adding gifts until the minute that I 
I had published, I was creating GIFs until the minute I published. And uh, there was something that happened before we released the last one, The Outfielders, where Wix, who is the, the provider for Birds on the Black, uh, we, I was having problems with the website and it cleared out all my gifts for the outfielders. So I had to stay up until like two o'clock in the morning, reinserting gifts and remaking gifts, uh, to put them into the, 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 uh, the write-up. And I've had just an incredible amount of trouble sleeping since then. Cause I've been so geared up and excited about the way it went and I'm just ready to get things going. Like it actually re-energized me a, a great deal. So, uh, but thank you so much for, for what you said. Well, it's a nice break to uh, kind of step back and just talk about this stuff instead of researching it and writing it. And I mean, the winter meetings happening this week could have provided some interesting conversation. Maybe they did for other teams. Uh, if I had the opportunity, I would 1000% be a mystery team just for the winter meetings. But uh, Kyle, has anything stood out from the winter meetings that you were surprised by or that just has been the the most significant um, deal, even if it was before the winter meetings, the off season thus far, what stands out? (laughs) It's for me, it's just the general landscape of how the entire process is going as compared to the last two seasons to, you know, the the winter meetings already are more lively in, in just a day and a half, two days than the entire off season was last year. Yeah. And, and for the for the market to be developing the way that it is with pitchers getting paid a lot of money and not just, you know, not just Steven Strasburg, who got more money than I thought he would, but uh, Zach Wheeler, who has injury yeah. history, who's getting paid substantially. It, it's been kind of a shock to me. I didn't expect the market to correct this way as quickly as it's corrected this way. And that's what stood out to me just after the last two years of having uh, an organizational to free agent stalemate, and even on the trading, like from a trading standpoint, a basic stalemate between players, uh, organizations, and organizations and organizations, to watch it just unfold in a very aggressive manner, and I'll throw in a little bit, the year before the collective bargaining agreement mm-hmm. needs to be reached, uh, is, is a very interesting thing to see and to have happen, and it's just made the offseason that much more exciting and that much more fun. So that's you know, without getting into like full on specifics, it's just the pace and the feel of this offseason is is different and it feels good. Yeah, I was going to ask about the idea of maybe some pressure from the Players Association, from um, the the commentary on the last couple of off seasons, even just how it's gone and some of the public pressure that's been applied and that sort of thing, which becomes relevant, right? When we start talking about these minor league contract negotiations as well, because there's been a dramatic shift in the way things have gone this off season. And I think to some extent, whomever that benefits is going to use that in the negotiating process one way or the other, or, you know, the flip side is you're going to try to correct that before the negotiating process begins so that it doesn't, you know, create this divisive uh, impasse when you get to that, to that conversation. So I don't know if there's, I mean, to be a fly on the wall, right. With those conversations happening between the reps of the different parties, I don't know if we can draw a direct association to that, but it is an interesting concept to consider yeah and all the talk over the last two years has been about this like whispers of collusion yeah which i don't i think we've always gotten that wrong and a a conspiracy theory is a conspiracy theory but i think that it was collusion brought on by the formula 
You know, I think that it was the mm. adaptation of statistical analysis to being assigned a dollar value that ended up creating a collusion. And I, I don't necessarily think that it was like full on the owners getting together and saying, blah, 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 we're not going to sign, we're not going to do this. I think it was just everyone adapted kind of at the same time. And I think that that created that landscape uh, to now it almost seems like the opposite. It almost seems like they all got a, they all got a different formula or an adri- a formula adjusted on the fly. And they're all like scrambling around to, 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 to improve their team as quickly as they can. And it seems like every team is trying to improve in some capacity, which is even weirder to me, you know, yeah. I don't, it's just really weird. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. And I'm not going to ask questions because I love it. Yeah. There's an element of chaos to it, but also just like teams trying to be competitive, which shouldn't be a novel concept, but it sort of is in baseball at this point. And I am not opposed to it. The Cardinals have not gotten in on that action as of yet, although they continue to do the classic thing where they say that they're not not looking. They're just not identifying what they're looking for. Other than a left-handed bat, which came out in the last couple of days, that seems to be just like someone wrote it in Sharpie on a list for John Mozeliak, and he can't not look for yeah. a left-handed bat in the offseason. I don't quite understand the obsession, but it, of course, has brought Matt Carpenter front and center to a lot of people. And before we get into all the minor league stuff, I I just we got to talk about Matt Carpenter for a minute because I I don't understand how we got to the point where Matt Carpenter is the great Cardinals villain. Like how how did a guy like Matt Carpenter who has his entire career played wherever they asked him to play, played whenever they asked him to play, played behind whomever they asked him to play behind, how did he become like the villain of all villains for the St. Louis Cardinals, Kyle. I don't, I don't understand it. While at the same time, you know, to, to put the war I- into the argument, he was the last player, uh, a last Cardinal player to have like a seven war. He had like a 7.2 yeah. war and he, he was prolific. He, he was prolific as a Cardinal. He's going to be a Cardinal Hall of Famer. And it doesn't make sense to me. I have this whole thing about roster redundancies. I think the Cardinals have done an amazing job. And you and I have talked about this again, uh, away from, uh, the, like, the, I guess the limelight or the public, you know, the public, uh, away from the public. And they have this way of creating a roster of redundancies, it seems. Yeah. And with all this talk after yesterday about the Cardinals, up, I guess, trying to acquire a left-handed bat. And I think we've all gone to the outfield because that makes the most sense. But Mr. Mazalak was pretty specific about saying that it might not be an outfielder. It could be something else. Um, whatever that is, I don't know. Uh, but it, it, It's clearly the player that has no label and can just play anywhere, yeah. like Tommy Edmond. That's all they want yeah. anymore. Yeah, or <laughs> somehow Francisco Lindor, which would be incredible, but it right. probably yeah. going to happen. I, uh, but yeah, that's and that's it. So all I did was harmlessly tweet out that, like, yeah, the Cardinals have this... They have left-handed left-handed players they have a bunch of switch hitters you know and we all have feelings about all of these guys but you know between Colton Wong who had a great season who's been one of the most productive Cardinals over the last three years when you think about it uh you know granted his you look at his stats in 2018 and it was a little weird but uh, and he had a good 2017 a great 2019 did some productive things in 2018 in the second half when he was healthy he's left-handed you know Fowler's gonna play you know Carpenter's gonna play and you have Tommy Edmond all four of those guys can hit left-handed and then on top of that, you have a, a left-handed outfield prospect, a switch-hitting prospect who does most of his damage left-handed in Dylan Carlson, 
who is arguably Major League Ready, or as close to Major League Ready as the Cardinals have had out of a 20-year-old in my lifetime. Um, even Oscar Tavares included there. And I just said that, you know, if you use these guys properly, that's how you maximize your roster. And if you look at Matt Carpenter down the stretch from August 4th when he came off the IL until the end of the year, uh, at the end of the season, he had a 115 WRC plus and did a ton of damage. And the reason he was successful is he got plenty of rest. He wasn't hitting against lefties. He was hitting against righties. Uh, and he was, it was like that combination really seemed to get the best out of him. And all I said was, if these guys are, are well, they're capable bats. I didn't say anything beyond just uh, they're capable left-handed bats in these situations. And the amount of people who just like immediately attacked Matt Carpenter, just from that, that harmless, factually, statistically factual tweet was incredible to me. And I've also been one to say that I don't think Matt Carpenter should play every day. I, I think, again, the best way to maximize him is to give him plenty of at-bats and give him the matchup so that he can succeed. I think that's a point in his career that he's at. But I don't understand the hatred for it. Uh, you you nailed it as you do, Tara. He He's done everything. The only thing that people ever could complain about with him until he started striking out more, and I think the strikeouts have something to do with it, uh, is that he had trouble hitting outside of the leadoff spot. And it didn't mean that he wouldn't hit outside of the leadoff spot. It just meant that he didn't hit out of the leadoff spot. But everything that he's been asked to do, uh, he's always done. He Even in the playoffs, like we were all clapping and applauding him for pulling himself out of the, 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 the last game of the NLDS for a defensive replacement uh, because it was the right thing to do. He went to the manager into that because it was the right thing to do. The, the hatred for him is off the charts, and it does not make any sense. He's done nothing... But whatever the Cardinals have asked, he's been an organizational soldier, and he's getting paid a little bit of money to strike out a lot now, and people don't know what to do about it. And it's, it's upset. It sucks. I hate that. But uh, I don't know. Is there anything I'm missing? What do you think? I, you know, I feel like to a certain extent, he's sort of the victim of the people around him in that the contract didn't seem like a wise move, and people take that out on Matt Carpenter when he had nothing to do with really the organization offering him uh, a, a new contract or an extension. Um, the fact that he was in the leadoff spot for too long, perhaps while he was struggling yeah. under the former manager, that's really not his fault. Um, you know, but at the same time, I mean, this is a guy who literally had to take time off because he worked too hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as if, I mean, that's the kind of guy that the Cardinals faithful typically flock to and love because of the work ethic and because he's not the most talented, but he makes the most of the ability that he does have and the opportunities that he's given. And, you know, he's kind of that quiet guy that isn't maybe the vocal leader that everyone would like for him to be, but not everybody has to be. And I don't know, there, there was this really weird dialogue at some point last season about how he was a bad teammate and he wasn't buying in. Mm. And I don't know, it was just so strange to me. And obviously it's easy for me to, to say that from the outside looking in, but man, I just don't understand the dramatic disdain for Matt Carpenter from some people. And look, I, the reality is he's a part of this team in 2020. And like I said about Dexter Fowler, after his 
miserable year in 2018, he's going to play. They're going to give him the opportunity because the best way to get value out of Matt Carpenter is for Matt Carpenter to be good at baseball again, to not struggle like he did last year. So uh, there's, there's no, uh, there's no way around that. Um, (laughs) Even the comments today by Michael Gersh on MLB network talking about Matt Carpenter being the third baseman going into 2020 it's the second week of December. <laughs> of course, they're going to say that. They have no other confirmed, guaranteed option at this point. And I don't know. I think everyone maybe, now I'm not going to tell anyone how to be a fan, but I just think sometimes we all need to take a breath <laughs> and and maybe not get so lost in the weeds that it turns into this, I don't know, really intense vitriol for a, a single human being. I don't get it. Yeah, and it's... What I like is I like to try to use these examples to try to make myself, I I, I guess, feel better. Like I I try to make myself guilty in all of this. I I know it's a weird thing, but (laughs) I've been very, very vocal about uh, for for many, many years now about Harrison Bader being an amazing fourth outfielder. And, you know, when I start thinking about Matt Carpenter, and it's not the same thing, and I'm not trying to compare the two or say that Harrison Bader will ever have a career or anything like Matt Carpenter, but... An offseason can do miracles, yeah. you know, especially for someone like Harrison Bader. I watched a, a video of Harrison Bader. Uh, they, it was the video was on MLB.com and it was the, of the 10 longest home runs hit by a Cardinal in uh, in 2019. And he had three of the 10 and all three of them were in smart hitters counts. And granted, all of them were up in the zone, too. And I think there's something to that. But he's such a raw athlete still. And to completely write him off uh, as a potential impact all the way around center fielder at the major league level, it, it, it's glib on my part. Uh, it doesn't mean that I can't say that I think that that's still the most likely outcome. Uh, but it's also not fair for me to vilify him for continuing his hardest to try to improve. And that's all that Matt Carpenter's done. That's all that someone like Harrison Bader is trying to do. They might not be doing it the way that we would or the way that we think is best for them. But they definitely are, uh, and I, I I just try to use it as an example to like make myself uh, uh, take in the entire landscape of what's going on, and I, I hope that other people kind of have that same uh, realization or that same type of adjustment. Uh, but I, it does not make any sense to me, and I I don't get it, Tara. I don't get it. I know that's a weak transition and a very very weak weak analysis of the situation. But I, I think that it goes to show you that over the last couple of years, fans got really fired up. And now that we're in the play, now that the Cardinals have made the playoffs, uh, we're all kind of adjusting how we, like, our expectations of it. And we all want the Cardinals to be as good as possible. But the reality of the situation kind of works against potentially as good as the Cardinals are capable of being. And I think we're all just lashing out, like you said, at, here in the second week of December uh thinking more about what 2019 looked like than what 2020 could look like i think we also all need to always remember that it's really 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 hard to be a major league baseball player like that sounds so simple and and so cliche but I, we'll talk about well maybe this will transition into the minor league conversation because you and i were talking about this the other day that it's so hard to even get to that point where you you're capable 
of making a, a major league roster, maybe more than any other sport that has any sort of development system, it's hard to just get to that point, much less maintain it over the course of a, a long major league career. And that becomes part of this conversation about the minor leagues, Kyle, because in the writing that I've done, in the conversations that I've had, people keep coming back to me with, well, yeah, but do they really need 160 minor league teams? Is that really necessary? And I asked you the other day, because I was sort of workshopping this idea on my own and needed someone to bounce it off of. Um, I asked you about this because it seems to me that the development process in baseball is so much more, uh, so much harder, I guess, so much more um, involved than in any other sport. And that isn't necessarily in and of itself a reason to have 160 specifically minor league affiliates. But Kyle, they have to come a long way from the time that they're drafted or signed until they're actually, based on their skill set, ready to play at the major leagues. Unlike a guy who's drafted out of college for football and is playing in the NFL the next season. Yeah, there's a, uh, I mean, even physically. The other thing that separates baseball, pardon me, and that's one of the things that you and I talked about, you know, baseball and hockey both have teenagers drafted. Yeah. High school kids drafted. You know, f- hockey is a completely different beast, the way that they um, organize their, their junior system and the AHL. And uh, it, it's different and, and it's a different setup and it's kind of tailor made for the NHL. But even in the NHL, like your first round draft picks aren't likely to be as, as successful as, as you would think. The great statistic with baseball. Baseball America did all of the groundwork for us, is that uh, of the draft, 9.8% of players drafted in any given draft, on average, over the last, I think it was 25 or 30 years, 9.8% of drafted players will make a major league debut. They, they, will, or, they will have a war of .01 or higher in their career. That's 10% of people drafted 9.8 make the major leagues. Now, that's not that's not an impact player either. That's just a player who makes a debut. 70% of first round draft picks make a debut over that time that time frame. But of them, I think the number is like 35% of that 70% end up having a, a positive impact at the major league level. That gives you some idea of just how hard it is to go from being an elite drafted player to being uh, even a, uh, not even an impactful, but a a serviceable major leaguer. The odds are so slim. Now, one of the things that you and I talked about as well, uh, I coached uh, Little League Baseball for the last 10 years. I started doing it when I was 23. I'm 33 now. It was an incredible experience. It also opened my eyes. I coached two different teams, and not to not to beat up on the kids, but the the teams were not club teams. They were not you know the lower level teams. It was just kind of like a recreational league, but for kids uh, to learn the fundamentals and not be in like a development league and not be in the elite thing where you're playing a hundred times a day. Uh, they were just good kids who wanted to play baseball and also wanted to play soccer and wanted to play football, and that's gone now. Uh, it's not completely gone, but that is the rare occasion. Uh, I can tell you that. When I started coaching, when I was 23 years old, as compared to when I finished coaching at 33, 
kids nowadays are are professionals at the age of 10. They're they're in the cage five nights a week. They're playing all weekend. They have lessons for everything. And even then, even then, as things have changed over the years, the numbers haven't fluctuated at the major league level. And that's because so much development is needed. And it's crazy because it's still the same fundamental game that we all played as eight-year-olds, even when we weren't playing them professionally like the eight-year-olds are now. It's still the same thing. But those small little increases in size and velocity and movement uh, and power and strength absolutely alter how the game is played from level to level, how hard it is to adapt to it. And the mental side of 162, or in a minor league case, 115, 120, even on a short season club, you know, 80 games, uh, on that, on any of those time frames, how hard it is to be that good. Uh, I, I would suggest that now more than ever, as kids continue to play Little League Baseball uh, at an intense rate and train for baseball at an intense rate, even before they become teenagers, that the development is more needed now than it's ever been because there is, there is a, everyone's looking for a competitive advantage and everyone is yeah. finding it, especially with the usage of technology these days. Uh, things are changing and I do think it's reasonable to, to assume that more development is needed now than ever. Uh, one last thought before, before I stop talking, uh, and I know I'm long-winded and I am so sorry about that. Um, it, it, the, the thing that kind of spirals off of that is I think very, very much that it, I don't know, like, I don't know where it goes from here. I, I don't, I don't know how the system is capable of even augmenting itself. You know, uh, we talk about all these uh, potential 42 teams being eliminated and sure 42 teams are going to get eliminated, but that ignores the fact that major league baseball and a lot of the, the front offices, a lot of the owners just added a bunch of Dominican league teams yeah. uh, in the last two or three years. The Cardinals did it. So, you know, again, I, I think it's a, I think it's just a, a terrible system that what they're trying to do now is they're just trying to get control of these kids cheaper and younger, as opposed to the, the pressure that comes with uh, uh, having to pay them once they're a little bit older. Uh, Tara, you hit on a, a, what I thought was a great point when, when you first started asking this question 100 minutes ago when I first started talking, and it's that it's crazy how quick that the, the, the pressure, the public pressure has gone quiet. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Do you have any feelings about why we went from how, how for two straight years now it's gone from being like a loud fan outcry to almost completely quiet in a matter of like two weeks. Do you have any feelings about what might be causing that? It's funny. To a certain extent, I feel like people care more when they think they know the whole story than when they actually have to learn the whole story. Yeah. So to some extent, and it's certainly that's not true of everyone, but I think to some extent, there's so much more information now being offered, so many more stories being told that it's almost less of this like novelty concept and more reality. And we just don't pay that much attention to reality. So I think there's some of that to it. But I also know from the conversations that I have had with presidents, owners, 
GMs of minor league teams, there there's a, a a there's definitely a difference of opinion in whether this should be made public as much as possible and whether it should be kept behind closed doors and negotiated exclusively directly between minor league baseball representatives and major league baseball representatives. You sent me an article today that was talking about, or that quoted rather representatives from major league baseball and from minor league baseball. And uh, man, the, the conversation through the press between the two sides makes it very clear that this isn't just a thing that's going to go away. If people stop talking about it, the, to some extent, the damage has been done with the plan itself and then with the dramatic reaction. But as for why people aren't talking about it, Kyle, I'm I'm honestly as confused by that as you are to some extent because the public pressure in situations like this does matter. But I also think the actual stories matter. And that's what I tried to do was to get actual stories from the people directly involved, get their actual reactions to some of the things that were being said about their teams and about their facilities and about their league and about their futures, because it's their story to tell, not mine to make up. And those stories just aren't really being told at this point. And maybe it's because the news cycle moves on so quickly, but there's always a new story. And this has kind of taken a backseat, perhaps because uh, when it blew up, it was kind of like, hey, don't do this. And then we all realized there's no quick resolution to it. And, uh, you know, we just kind of have to wait and see at this point. But I would love for more voices to be heard that are not just <laughs> that are not just people with opinions like, you know, like you and me, like we're doing right now um, talking about this, but that, that are actually the people who are going to be affected by it, whether it's um, people in the communities or the even the the politicians that have gotten involved, I would love to know more about why they felt like now was the time to try to be invested in minor league baseball. But even Kyle, I was talking to one general manager um, last week, and and he was telling me about a guy who runs a, a concession stand in their building in their stadium during the summer, and a number of these teams have told me that they have either high school athletes from a local school or charity organizations run those stands and then they take some of the proceeds from that. And it's part of the the way that they um, give back in their communities. But anyway, this, this uh, GM was telling me that he ran into a guy who runs one of those stands and he was terrified that this was just going to go away for them. And that's why at the top of the show, when you said this is bigger than baseball, I mean, we can continue to debate the merits of 160 teams, and we will because I have some things to add to what you said before, but there's so much more involved in this that you can't just, it, it's one of those things where, you know, the cliches about Pandora's box, well, you can't put it all back in the box once it's there. Well, once 160 teams have been created, that's 160 communities that are now woven into this process. You can't just pull it out and not have an impact on other things. That's the part of this that I, I think is so relatable that also isn't necessarily being talked about as much. Yeah. Yeah, that's very well said. Uh, one of the things that you pointed out uh, in the article that I sent to you was just how contentious it continues to be. You even, you even mentioned it a little while ago that like 
you hear Major League Baseball's quotes, or you, you read Major League Baseball's quotes in the article, and you read MILB's quotes in the article, and like it does, it doesn't seem like there's any there. There's no amicable feelings at all. The only amicable feeling is that they definitely are at each other's throats. Uh, it's very accusational, and that that is incredible to me. It's incredible to watch, incredible to see, and incredible to read. And you know, if if I wasn't so invested in baseball, minor league or major league baseball aside, just baseball. Uh, I'd probably be loving it from like a WWE standpoint. I think that there's a story there to be told too, just on on how aggressive both of these sides are, uh, especially Major League Baseball, which has nothing to gain from being aggressive about it. And even that's a story, and that's really interesting. You know, just from an intrigue standpoint in all of this, I never, I I guess because all of these the prior agreements between Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball happen with relative ease. I didn't know that it could get like this, this quickly and this aggressively. And boy, I don't know where it goes from here. I, I don't. And I, I think that we need to continue to to tell the stories like you're telling the stories. Uh, because it seems to me, and you know, maybe this tells you more about me as a person, it just seems to me that minor league baseball is going to get hosed here. And... There's no world where that's good for baseball fans. Yeah. I wonder how much the reactions from Major League Baseball, the quotes that we're reading that you're talking about, it it really feels like they're just trying to strong arm minor league baseball because they have leverage. And it's almost like, yeah, you can try to gain public opinion, but it's not going to matter because we get the final say. And that's, a terrible negotiating tactic, especially when it determines some of the development of these players like we're talking about. I mean, there's, there's value in the opportunities that are created for these players. Right. And we could talk about what my uh, major league baseball has suggested as far as eliminating several rounds of the draft and how many players there are that to your point, don't really have a chance at making it to the big leagues. And, all of that's true, but I also we could all tell stories about players who were drafted late and then did make it or were drafted much later than they thought they would and became a player of a generation like Albert Pujols. I mean, there are so many stories like that, that it just feels like we were talking the other day that the elimination of these teams would maybe not impact the the top of the pyramid, right? It might not change Major League Baseball that much, but it would significantly change the opportunities for players who maybe develop a little slower or who maybe aren't the child prodigy at eight years old, but they finally click with a minor league instructor who brings something out of them that they didn't even know was there. And those are the kinds of things that you would miss without some of the development in those lower level teams. And I don't even know how to draw a conclusion from that because I'm I'm not necessarily confident enough in it to say that, yes, that's absolutely the thing that baseball needs to do for that specific reason. But it it's not nothing. No, and it's also, uh, you know, one of the names that we brought up uh, when you and I were talking is, is Terry Fuller. You know, Terry Fuller was a 15th round draft pick by the St. Louis Cardinals a couple of years back. 
18 year old uh, monster of a, a kid was scouted to play scouted to play football a linebacker for major SEC programs both Auburn and Alabama uh, Cardinals signed or Cardinals drafted him able to bring him in to the organization he was a raw athlete who has big power he's still only 21 uh, he missed an entire year uh, the 2018 season except for like the last two weeks of the season this big outfielder uh, athletic monster of a human being. Uh, he, he got off to a bit of a rough start after being drafted in 2018. He, he missed all the year pretty much. And then last year, he started blossoming. And with, without the current system, that doesn't happen. Now, Terry Fuller might end up dead-ending in Peoria. Uh, he might make it to Springfield and not advance any further. He could make it to the Cardinals. I don't know. But that player who, by the way, is an exciting player and a unique player and the kind of player that people are going to want to see because of what he is capable of if things click right, probably would be out of the organization already. He probably wouldn't have lasted past 2018 when he got hurt. Uh, and then he probably, if he would have been drafted at all, again, with a player like that, probably less of a chance to take a chance on him now because there's less of a chance for him to develop, uh, less of a chance for him to renege on his uh, commitment to Auburn or, uh, or I think it was Auburn. I'm pretty sure it was Auburn or, or Auburn or Alabama. Uh, less of an opportunity for that to happen because there's less of a chance for that kind of development time to happen. And, and it's it's all bad. That, that's all bad in my opinion because it, first off, he's a fun player to watch and he's a fun player uh, to, to see. And I just don't know how that's good for the sport in any capacity. And I, I know that it's it's very vague, but there's nowhere for this to go. Like, there, there's nowhere where there's a benefit to losing that kid. There's nowhere where that's, it, there's a benefit to not seeing if he can reach his pinnacle uh, from the, the sloppy clay base that he was after he was drafted. Yeah, I was, I was talking to the general manager for the Clinton Lumber Kings, one of the three teams in the state of Iowa that is on the contraction list, which is also a thing that is just wild yeah. to me. I mean, they're building an $8 million single day venue to play at the field of dreams because Iowa, and then they're going to pull out three teams. Anyway, that's a whole nother part of this conversation. We can go there later, but um, I was talking to him and, and his comment that actually created a, a bit of a conversation when I shared that article his comment was that, look, if you eliminate these opportunities, you're going to make it even more specialized. You're going to have even more kids that are going to stop playing baseball because if they're not on some scouts radar by the time they are eight years old, they're not going to get a chance. They're not going to get drafted. They're not going to get signed and they're going to just go play football or they're going to go play basketball or they're going to go, you know, be in theater or whatever else because if you take that opportunity, you're going to lose some kids much younger who feel like they don't even have a chance to begin with because they don't, you know, they can't go all in at eight years old. Yeah. And there's a, there's a socioeconomic benefit or, you know, uh, aspect of this too, that gets overlooked yeah. because it costs a lot of money to play baseball uh, professionally as a teenager uh, or as a preteen. And that, pretty well stops a, a large portion, a growing portion uh, uh, in our particular country of people from being able to play the sport that is quote unquote America's pastime. You know, poverty rates continue to increase here. And it's, it's, 
you know, I'm, I don't want to make this about politics or anything. I'm going to stick out of that. But there, there is a fact there that it's just another, another avenue that, that is eliminated to, you know, get out of those situations. And yeah, it's bad. It's just really bad all the way around. And it's funny. I, like I try to articulate a point and all my brain does is allow me to like, it allows me to get so far to where I just, I have like that. I can't formulate an opinion other than it's just so clearly bad for everything other than the bottom line of owners in major league baseball. And it can't be argued against any other way. The, the argument isn't, is it, is it bad for baseball, but good for owners, bottom lines, uh, the argument is, are we fine as baseball fans with it improving the elimination of all of these teams from communities? Uh, are we fine with that being and the impact it will have on, on not only baseball in general, are we fine with that uh, as a concession to owners saving $200,000 uh, in, in one year? And yeah, it, to me, it's it, not. It, it reinforces how much baseball is a business at this point, right? And I think to me, there's this like internal struggle with that because obviously we know that it is. We just spent a significant amount of time talking about the contract of Matt Carpenter and winter meetings uh, developments as far as how much money pitchers are getting. So we, we all know that it is in fact a business, but there's something to baseball that has always maintained this I don't know, this heart, this uh, soul to it that is not about the business once you get on the field. And man, boiling it all down to this, whether it's about money or whether it's about control, it just reiterates that it's so much about the business now that it feels it feels like the baseball that we all love. And I'm going very like, get off my lawn old man here for a moment, but it feels like the baseball that we know and love is kind of like not so slowly being pulled away for the sake of ease or control or convenience or, you know, being able to pay minor leaguers to get the public opinion off your back, but also not losing any of your profits. It just, it's such a mess. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and the other funny thing, as you brought up, and again, I know we're bouncing, and this is poor my influence on your normal, like, I know we're bouncing back and forth uh, between topics, but it even goes to the the farce that Major League Baseball and their owners are creating uh, with talking about facilities at these various different places that they're about ready to try to eliminate uh, affiliation with. Yeah. Uh, you, The articles that you've written in particular have been really good about illustrating that. You know, what we're, the one thing that keeps getting brought up, Major League Baseball will say that the facilities of these places uh, is what is, is the reason why they're being cut from affiliated baseball. And we know that that's not the case. We, we know it's not because we have the facts to prove it. We have uh, owners of minor league teams that are continuing to pump in cash. Uh, you know, uh, State College is the, a great example. They have an affiliation, a partnership with Penn State, uh, for lack of a better term. And those facilities are amazing. They're about as good as you can get because a major university is continuing to help aid those fields because it benefits them in the long run. Uh, it, it it's, it's all a farce. And the fact that that's one of the guises that are being used uh, in, in a potential pursuit of affiliation elimination, it, it should tell you right off of the bat that it is a farce. And, you know, I, I think it's clear and it's it's tragic. And, you know, 
I, I, somebody that I like a lot, uh, somebody who ha- has described prospects after dark as frantic or something crazy like that, Matthew Trueblood over at Baseball Prospectus. <laughs> you know, he's brought up that maybe it has extended – minor league baseball in general has extended a little too far. And I get that sentiment. And you know what? Uh, if we're just talking about from a bottom line standpoint, maybe that's right. Maybe it's not. But I know that that didn't prevent – and I, I keep hitting on the same point. But I know that didn't prevent the owners – from continuing to expand at the lowest levels uh, just over the last five years. Uh, and that's hypocrisy uh, at its finest. And the reason that it expanded at the lower levels is because it's easier to cost control and to control in general. Uh, and that's the current state of minor league baseball and that and the, uh, the agreement, the professional agreement that's being talked about there, you know? I feel like I have this conversation and just go in circles with it because it. I don't... It's so hard to find any sort of footing that makes sense from the base, the major league baseball perspective. Um, but I do want to just reiterate because I feel like this is important in the conversation that every team that I have talked to, every one of them from ownership to presidents, to general managers have said, we're not saying that improvements shouldn't be made. We're not saying that there isn't a good way to address you know, 10 hour bus trips or that facilities shouldn't continue to be upgraded as things changes and expectations change with them. And we're not saying, I mean, all of them have said, well, go ahead and pay minor leaguers more money. That has nothing to do with us. But every one of them has, has made a point to say, look, we're not, we're not opposed to progress. We're not opposed to improvements. We're not over here shouting from our, you know, mountaintop that we're never going to change. There just has to be communication involved in that. And that is why it it seems to come back to not just the idea of money, but the idea of, as you just said, control. And Major League Baseball teams as a business wanting absolute control rather than basically franchising their business to these minor league owners. And I mean, I'm sure that there's an argument to be made for that, right? I'm not the the business major. I am not going to break down the cost analysis of having 160 affiliates. But the, the fact is, they do. And once they're there, you can't eliminate them without a fight because it's going to impact a lot of people. Yeah, very well said. I, you know, I, I don't want to risk the... the I don't want to keep just beating the same drum. So I, I think you nailed it. I, I think I think all of it's important, and I hope that it stays at the forefront. I, you know, just from my standpoint in general, I, I love minor league baseball. Um, I love watching it as often as possible. I've never been to Johnson City, and I've never been to State College. Uh, I've, I have people that I, I know very, very closely who I talk with on a fairly regular basis who uh, are at that stadium frequently, uh, both of those stadiums frequently. And it's just, you know, I can only watch games on MILB, MILB TV if I'm not there. I don't necessarily have the same, like, I don't have the same horse in the race with Johnson City and State College and the, the rookie level affiliates that I have with the other ones because I can't, it's harder to get information. It's harder to follow them. And I'm a, I'm a pretty practical person. Again, I don't know very much about business. Um... I just know that it doesn't seem right. And every answer that they have to why, and they haven't given many answers. They've definitely kept more of a tight lid on this than the minor league side has. Uh, But every potential answer that is given for a reason that they might do the things that they're doing, uh, 
has a, uh, I don't know, a basketball size hole in it uh, from an argumentative <laughs> yeah. standpoint. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't hold up. That's for sure. But there is something, look, we've, we've both kind of harped on the, um, circumstances surrounding minor league baseball as far as what the players deal with on a daily basis that can all be improved no one's suggesting otherwise but this seems like a strange way to do it with um reasons that just don't hold up the moment you start to try to look at them or break them down or or go anywhere from there um but you know no one's letting us in the negotiating room so yeah yeah and i think i think one of the most important things is that when you talk to the the owners and the gms of the minor league teams that they tell you the truth and a lot of people don't know this i can tell i can tell you that i can tell the audience that firsthand that the major league teams are the ones that pay the salaries of the minor leaguers at the minor yep. league level people a lot of people don't realize that you know i've had people various people say how, how much money do you think the minor league teams can afford to pay these players? That is that is a fallacy. The, the major league teams can pay their players more. Toronto just did it last year, and they you know the players swore up and down that it had tremendous benefit. The, the Blue Jays uh, uh, continue to say that they believe it had a benefit, and this that part of it is not on minor league clubs. That part of it is on the major league clubs. Uh, and I think it's some kind of an idea with all of these years and all of this pressure still other than one organization uh, still unwilling to increase and help the, the type of lives that minor league players have uh, and not doing it. I think it kind of gives you an idea of where they are on all of this. Yeah, it's hard to give MLB the benefit of the doubt for now talking about the conditions of the uh, the the in the season for their minor league players when they they've had plenty of opportunities to do something about that before now and it didn't involve you know eliminating twenty five percent of their teams but they do they pay the salaries I had a GM kind of go through on the phone with me and break down what that looks like and how much money that is and uh, it, it, at least in his case the major league team pays seventy five percent of um, the cost for like bats and balls on the season. Yeah. And so he kind of gave me some rough numbers of what that looks like based on the 25% that they pay. And man, it's just not, it's, it's, a you know, a hundred bucks compared to yeah. <laughs> what it might seem like when you look at the money that they're bringing in every year. So it just feels really uh, disingenuous to start this conversation with we really care about our players when they've had the opportunity to do something to improve the lives of their players all along. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Very well said. Very well said. Do you, now, is there is there anything, you know, we had a very long form conversation about the development of minor league baseball, how it compares to NHL and NBA and NFL before I went on whatever the heck kind of tangent I went on in the first place. <laughs> uh, is there anything else there that we, we need to discuss or should be discussed? Man, first of all, I feel like, man, it was just such a great conversation. I feel like we, we were uh, on the same page sort of identifying why this seems like a problem. But one of the things that I um, sort of got to eventually in that conversation and you mentioned it as far as needing development more than ever is that these these players are coming into baseball at a different starting point than they ever have before 
But I think my argument when people say, well, do they really need all of these minor league teams, especially after that conversation, is that maybe not everyone needs that much development. But I don't know. I feel like the guys that do (laughs) shouldn't be eliminated from the equation because that team, you know, costs an extra $500,000 or whatever it is for the team that doesn't want to pay for them anymore. So I don't know, Kyle, I, I think for me, the, the comparison that I was trying to make in that conversation was how this compares to other major sports, because that's what everybody wants to do, right? You want to compare, you want to say, okay, well, the NBA doesn't have, you know, eight development teams on the way up to the NBA. The NFL doesn't do it. Well, the NFL uses collegiate football to do that to some extent, but that same process doesn't exist. So I guess for me, it's such a unique system, a unique setup that it deserves a, a, a unique process that isn't necessarily compared to those other sports because it, it can't be fairly. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about the, the minor league system for major league baseball, one of the many, many beautiful things is if a player doesn't need to be at a rookie level affiliate, you don't have to put them at a rookie level affiliate. There aren't restrictions on any of that. You know, yeah. that, the only restriction is if uh, an international player has a visa issue. That's the only thing that stops you from putting a player right. in whatever league you want to put them. And that's beautiful. I think that's wonderful. You know, uh, that's the way to do it. And, you know, I, I, I do understand, like, all of the talk about, you know, maybe eliminate this or maybe eliminate that. And every sport should work to, to make their sport better, without a doubt. But it could definitely be argued that there's no aspect of this that makes the sport better. And, uh, you know, I, I, the one thing I definitely don't want to get into is uh, the whole use of the word dream league. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. No, honestly, <laughs> the, I don't know enough about how that's being formed or what the thought No one does. <laughs> and But just, I am so enraged at the term Dream League. I find it terribly condescending uh, yeah. and, and in a really painful way, like super condescending, not only to the fans, but to the players, well, especially the players, but to the fans as well. And uh, I don't know. I think it's it's almost like, it's almost mocking the entire concept that they're trying to sell at the same time. It's almost like that, that commercial, the insurance commercial with the dollar on a a fishing pole, like, Oh, oh, you gotta be quicker. Like that's what that league feels like to me. It's like, ah, well, if you were better, you know, and that's just such a weird place to, to land as the concession to these to these towns, to these players, as if that is some equivalent to what it would have been if it was affiliated. It just doesn't, again, it doesn't hold up. Yeah. And if, if it was, if it was worth it, it wouldn't be a dream league. That dream league just smells of like, all right, let's get through the next agreement. And then when we get through the next agreement, we can just get rid of that thing. Like this is, let's try to make people happy. In the interim between agreements, uh, the interest will go away so much that we'll be able to get rid of eliminating it in the long term and we won't have to deal with this for more than X amount of years of agreement. It, it's it's a slap in the face to, to fans. It's a huge slap in the face to fans. It's an aggravating yeah. slap in the face to fans. Yeah. Um, 
not to send this off into a whole different ah. rabbit hole, but I'm going to ask anyway. Uh, do you think that there's any way for, I mentioned the uh, NFL takes players directly from college and and that's sort of the de- development for them. Is there any way to use college baseball more as the developing process if these minor league teams go away? So this is one thing that has actually happened quite frequently lately. We've also seen this with the Cardinals. Like Cardinals will draft a player, and over the last three years, they've been aggressive about putting the guys who are hitting uh, at the rookie-affiliated levels into Peoria. Uh, and in some cases, like Justin Turner, who is an outfielder, uh, you know, he was at Palm Beach in no time. It is becoming more and more common that this is the case. And this is the other flip side in all this that I think is going to be really interesting to keep an eye on. I don't know if it comes in this collective or this, I keep calling it, but this professional agreement or the next one or even the next collective bargaining agreement. We're finding out that high school players, and it's crazy to think that we're finding this out now, <laughs> but believe it or not, high school players are very much uh, more susceptible to failure uh, than collegiate players. We're seeing this especially with pitching. And part of me wonders, again, the conspiracy theorist in me wonders, or maybe the forward thinker, or maybe the maniac inside of me wonders, if the next step in all of this, uh, if this were to go through, if the next step in all of this is, especially now that players are getting more expensive uh, from an amateur to professional level uh, through the draft, if the next step is to eliminate high schoolers from having the eligibility uh, because of how well and how much more thorough the development process is with drafting a player out of college. And because they can still pay cheap for international teenage talent that they have complete control of uh, after they sign them at teenage levels, if, if that ends up being the next step in all this, where high school players are not allowed to enter the draft, uh, the, the teenage players are supplemented at the DSL, GCL level from international uh, uh, signings. And you can only, you know, if you're 20 years old and have played two seasons in college, you're eligible for the draft. I do think that that's the next step. And I do think part of that is because uh, collegiate level baseball is doing an amazing job of, of developing talent. Yeah, it, that seems like the workaround if they want to eliminate the development on their own on their own dime i guess um but i I was thinking about that after our conversation the other day so i wanted to throw that out there at you as well kyle i feel like we could talk about this for i mean i sort of joked on twitter that it was going to be a six-hour show but (laughs) we could probably talk about it for close to six hours but i don't know that anyone would keep listening at that point so is there anything else that you want to make sure that we hit on before uh before we shut it down for the night. Yeah, I, as far as that goes, no, no. I think I, I wish that I, I wish my brain was different so that we could have a, a little bit more clear and concise conversation. But th- there's just so much going on in this. Yeah, that, and, and so much is coming out quick, and th- there's so much information and so much to take in that it's hard to stay completely focused on it. Just try to remember uh, to the audience if you can. Just try to remember. To, to sort out the noise, keep reading what Tara's writing, keep keep glued to that because it's very, very important information that uh, you aren't finding anywhere else that helps paint a picture of all of this. And then, of course, the other thing that I would ask, and it's what I always try to do with the minor leaguers, you know, they are pursuing a dream. It's a dream that I would guess, I would wager to, I would I wager to venture that uh, uh, 
nearly everyone who's listening to this had as a preteen. And yes, they are following a dream of being a professional baseball player. No doubt about it. But if you were in their position, would you be happy making $7,000 in a year <laughs> for doing it? And could you live on it? And how could you live on it? And what would that feel like? What would that look like? How would you feel valued? You know, sure, it should be a test. It should be a grind. Uh, uh, and the elite should make the level. But is it the right thing to do? And uh, that's just ask, would you like to be in that situation? Uh, sure, I'd love to be a minor leaguer, but as someone who budgets like a complete jerk and uh, on his already, you know, his fine salary, I can't even imagine what that's like. And that's enough for me to want them to do better and to have uh, reasonable facilities and for the sport that I love to not cripple fan bases in the process. That doesn't seem unreasonable at all. So I I think that's a good way to wrap that up. I'm going to be completely honest with you. Alex always does the chirp of the week. I did not even think about it until just now. So this is going to be the first show without one (laughs) because I have no chirp of the week. I was woefully unprepared for the end of the show without Alex, which is the thing that now I know about. I I don't know how to end this show without Alex. So Alex, please come back from your Christmas party and um, don't leave me alone again at the end of the show. Uh, Kyle, I am so glad that we got to do this. Um, What's, what's next now that the prospect rankings are done? Oh boy. Well, come February, we'll have our dirty 35 rankings, the top 35 prospects in the Cardinals organization. I've, already rearranged my list probably seven times over the last three (laughs) weeks. Uh, It is a constant work in progress, just like with the prospect rankings. Up until the last minute, I was making changes. When I was doing the utility infielders, at one point I had Kramer Robertson fifth. And uh, when we finished doing the podcast version, uh, he was eighth. And I'm not really (laughs) sure how that happened. And that that ended up being an emotional roller coaster, both listening. I'm sure if you were listening to the podcast, it was definitely while I was recording the podcast. But then I had to go back and change the write up. And that was a whole show there, too, that I, I just I'm apologetic to people for that, too. Um, but, yeah, it'll be it'll be diving deep into the Cardinals organization with my top 35 prospects. That'll probably come. Uh, in February, the reason I like waiting is because what we're seeing right now, we're teams are trading prospects and you don't know yeah. who's going to get hit or who's going to get hurt rather. Uh, and also, I think that it's a great primer to uh, spring training. And I think that it helps it, it like it makes spring training a little bit more interesting when you're releasing prospect number 30 and he gets in at bat that day. I think it's I just think it's it's a little bit more eye opening and a little bit more uh, interest catching. And uh, that that's the next project, and that started started working on that this weekend. It's a it's a whole thing, and uh, I, I appreciate all the support. And Tara, it was a pleasure, and hopefully, you and I have a chance to talk about this uh, continuing moving forward. I happen to know some people, so we can arrange uh, this sort of conversation yes. as often as you would like. We. I would just have to have have uh, Alex at the end of the show. That's what we've established. I don't know. I don't know how to end the show without him. But the rest we've filled up an hour just fine. So um, come back for the end of the show, Alex. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, no, we actually do. People have requested a show with all three of us. That one might actually be six hours, yeah. but we'll we'll carve that into the schedule at some point. One other thing that I want to remind all of the listeners about is that there is 
brand new merch up at the Birds on the Black store. There's all kinds of cool stuff. And when I say cool stuff, like, it's so great, you guys. And I'm not saying that just because there's a Chirp sweatshirt now, but it there's awesome. new pad awesome. gear. There's um, a, a scorecard done by our dear friend Stu and there's a sweet bomber jacket with the birds logo embroidered on it. Just really cool stuff. So if you're doing any holiday shopping or if you just want to buy yourself something, check it out over at birdsonthablack.com. Tons of cool stuff. And I, we already have new stuff in the works as far as the conversations about new merch. So make sure you keep an eye on that. Make sure that I would say that you're following Kyle, but you clearly are already following Kyle because who isn't? Uh. You can follow me on Twitter as well and Alex and let him know that you missed him on the show. Hopefully he'll be back with us next week when hopefully there's more actual major league news to talk about. And then we'll revisit this minor league topic throughout the off season. And really as long as that process goes along as well. So Kyle, thanks so much Thanks to everyone else for listening. I'm Tara. He's Kyle. We miss you, Alex. (laughs) Talk to you next time.